So there were a lot of different places that it seemed like uh, we could start. I think maybe just a brief, almost academic note. Uh, I think it, it's helpful to know where something's coming from. And I assume probably a lot of people do, but it, it bears repeating. Um, we're sharing uh, as best we know to be the teachings of the Buddha. Uh, and very specifically, actually, teachings that were preserved. So, you know, imagine the Buddha taught about 2,600 years ago. There was an early set of texts preserved in a language called Pali. It's a precursor to Sanskrit. It's kind of like the Indian Latin. Nobody speaks it. It exists solely for the preservation of spiritual teachings. And those teachings, the Pali teachings, were preserved in, in uh, Southeast Asia. They sort of traveled from India into uh, Cambodia and Thailand and Myanmar and were memorized by monks for about 400 years. And then there was a king, King Ashoka. And he started writing this stuff down and ah, a little louder. And then we get our first written accounts of the Dharma. And you can actually tell from reading the text that there are mistakes. Um, some things just don't make sense. There's some historical anachronisms. There's some oddities, right? So, so this is imperfect. We are carrying a set of teachings that have been imperfectly preserved. But one of the beauties of this tradition is that it does not start with faith in the way that we often talk about it. Uh, you're, you're not asked to believe anything other than what you can observe. And typically, the first thing you can observe is that there's somebody sitting in front of you saying, I tried this and it worked. Right? That's like the little drop of faith. And you say, okay, well, maybe I'll try a little bit. And then you try a little bit and maybe it works a little bit. And you try a little bit more and that works a little bit more. And so those are sort of the two ways we preserve the Dhamma. There's the intellectual way of memorizing literally the words and the teachings. And then there's the deeper way of internalizing them and saying, oh my gosh, that works. I, I can take these words on paper and put them to practice in this body and this mind and feel better, like in a very, very profound way. And one of the things that I, I really hope to invite in this um, is sort of a healthy skepticism. I, I encourage people to ask questions, to talk about the stuff that doesn't make sense. Like, what the heck did you mean by that? Like, when I've tried that, it doesn't do at all what you say. It, it does. Because it, there's no hocus pocus here. It's really about finding something that's going to make you feel better. Right? That, that's what we're aiming to do. And I can speak for myself, and I'm guessing, given all of the time and energy she devotes to this for Trisha as well, that like it has really helped us. Like this is a profoundly useful teaching, set of teachings. Can you guys hear me okay? Great.
So I'll leave the, the historical stuff aside. At its essence, the, the sort of core observation here is that this is really hard. Right? I don't know what anybody else's day was like today, right? But more often than not, they're tough, right? They're tough because, whew, thinking of all the things that are tough. I take a second. They're tough. All right. They're tough because people die. They're tough because people we love get sick. They're tough because people we love are suffering or mentally ill are confused, are lost, are hurt. These lives are hard. And there's something actually just in that teaching, really letting that in, that like this hard day isn't because of some personal failure. It's the way it is, right? These bodies are subject to disease, to aging, to getting brittle, to getting broken, and then to dying. The people we loved who cared for us, they die. They get confused, they lose their minds. Our kids, we take care of, Bad things happen to them, things on the inside, things on the outside. And it's not personal. It's been going on for a really long time. And that's where the Buddha started. Like, holy crap, look how hard and painful this is. And to his mind, the point of the spiritual path, and, and from what I can tell, this is the point for Jesus too, and probably a number of other spiritual seekers. But in this tradition, the point of the spiritual path was to say, what, what do we do with this? How can we be at peace? Given that these are the, the sort of rules of the equation. Like how can life be something Maybe not jolly, but 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 navigable, and and maybe um, a place where there can be a sense of contentment, a sense of connection, a sense of of purpose amidst all of that. And that was the point of the spiritual journey. And a lot of you probably know, in the beginning of that journey, the Buddha was like, maybe the, the thing to do is to just turn to pain, just like bring it on. 
So he did. He starved himself. And he, you know, did all this nutty stuff. Nutties. He was sincerely trying to to feel better, but it didn't work. Uh, what they, he and his contemporaries found was that uh, either if you turn fully towards pain, you died before you ever felt better, or the system created so much aversion to the practices that it gave up. So it didn't work. It just, that was not the way. And it's pretty clear to most of us, Buddha didn't have to try this one. He, he was sort of raised in it like a lot of us are. The, the hedonistic path doesn't work either. Right? If you think of your friends who drink to excess or gamble to excess or have sex to excess, they're not the happiest people you know, right? So we kind of know that neither of those ends of the spectrum work. And so there's an understanding, okay, the path must be somewhere between these two extremes. And through careful observation, what the Buddha came to understand was that the thing that makes us miserable isn't actually people dying or pain or the inability to make as much money as we need to do the things that we feel like would be really good to be able to do. Found that what, what really makes the human mind unhappy is its fixation, its obsession with being able to control things and make them other than how they are. And actually that, that, that fixation and that obsession, that, that attempt to stay alive forever and keep everyone we love alive forever and keep everyone sane and happy and healthy all the time forever, it makes us miserable. And it actually prevents us from doing a lot of the healthy things that lead to our enjoyment and satisfaction. It's this sort of cruel irony that the very mind state that we think is gonna help us get what we want keeps us from, from making the choices that actually get us there. So this is the second noble truth, that craving, that attachment, that clinging, that this clenching of the mind, clenching of the body, this tightening up like, oh, why can't I, why can't he, why can't they, why can't it, why does it have to be this, why me, all of that, 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 why, that makes us miserable. That is the source of human suffering. That is what actually makes the mind so unhappy. And the Buddha then observed that this can stop. It does not have to be an inherent feature of the human condition. Those other things are, but this doesn't. This can be shifted. And that shift occurs through a process of shifting our perspective, of shifting our behaviors, 
and then of ultimately shifting how we process experience. And the Buddha said, if you watch these sort of categories of things, your perspectives, your behaviors, and how the mind processes reality, and you start to bring them into alignment, you can be at peace. You can live life amidst death and dying and aging and loss and failure, and it can feel okay. And in fact, from that place, you'll be capable of tremendous love, of being with people in all conditions, in all circumstances, with a fully open heart. And you will give freely, and you will love freely, and he said, this is possible, not just for me, but for you. And that, in a nutshell, is what we're teaching here. That will be the, the, the thing that we are always getting at in one way or another. Well, for just a little longer, and then I'll wrap it up. The place the Buddha started, well, he laid it out. He said there are sort of eight things you have to watch, eight variables that are really important to keep your eye on if you want to create peace in the mind. It's as if you're cooking and somebody said, you gotta watch the heat, right? You gotta watch uh, the amount of spice you put into the food, right? You have to watch cooking time. You know, just these are the variables that you need to cook a dish. And the Buddha said, there are certain variables you have to watch to cook a mind, right? And that's what we're doing. We're cooking our minds. We're cooking peaceful minds and those eight variables can be sort of tuned towards what we would call uh, the right or the wholesome or the consummate kind of perfectly adjusted or not and those variables are the eightfold path they're the eight things to watch and you can watch any one of them in any moment they're all fluctuating as we speak and all of this. And the one that I, I, I come back to the most, because in a certain way, it is both the beginning and the end of these variables, is the very first one of what he called right view or consummate view or perfected view. And this one, has two pieces to it. And I'll just leave these with you all tonight as sort of something to consider and to play with. But the first piece is that there is cause and effect, particularly in the mind. And things that are done with what we would call wholesome intentions, the intention to live simply, the intention to give, the intention to 
be kind. So let go, be kind, and give. Those intentions produce an effect that is positive in the mind. They lead to, to contentment, they lead to peace, they lead to, to, to what he would sort of call a peaceful abiding. The Buddha also argued, and I haven't, I don't have this evidence, so I'm not going to share it as the gospel truth, right? I, like I said, I really take this to heart that like we only share what we've come to observe directly. But he also said that like over cosmic eons, it plays out that way too. That actually sort of rebirths are conditioned by these intentions of the mind. You can take that or leave it. But you don't need to believe it to observe that it feels good to give with an open heart. It feels good to be kind to people. It feels good to let go and simplify life. You can feel it, right? It's like, oh, that's a weight off when you unsubscribe from a bunch of emails in your inbox. And you can also observe that it creates a community that gives these feelings back. So that's a second form of karma, karma that we can observe in the here and now. You start to put that out there, it starts to come back. You start to say hello to the postman and the person at the grocery store. And then they start to say hello to you, right? And then there's this feeling of reciprocity and love and so you've created your karma right there. You see it. So right view starts with cause and effect. There are things you can do that will change the way the mind experiences reality. And the second thing, if you go all the way through the whole Eightfold Path, which we'll do at some point, and you come back to right view, is that not only is there cause and effect, but there's no you in the middle of it. It's just cause and effect. This body is the product of biology, right? I mean, we don't need the birds and the bees talk, right? But it's, it's, you can track that whole process. This leads to that, leads to that, leads to that, right? And experience. And all of these thoughts, all of these memories, the body itself, we like lay claim to this thing as if it is some personal, as if there's some, something in here controlling the show, right? Raise your hand if you chose to be born. Yeah, right? When exactly did you enter the scene? Right, this is a process. It's like an oak tree, right? At one point, an oak tree is an acorn, then it's a big tree, and then it's a rotten log. Same here. There doesn't need to be anything essential for that process to do what it does. And that's the same as the human mind. And the Buddha said, once you understand these two things, that there is cause and effect, and that there's no you controlling the show, nor is there a, a you for anybody else, they're all cause and effect too, right? The mind is liberated. Because if it understands cause and effect and it understands that there's no me in the middle of this, then all life is, is this process that we, that, that, that we can learn how to navigate as, as wholesomely and openly as possible. And there's nothing else to do. There's no blame to assign. There's no hate to assign. People who are doing 
unwholesome, unhealthy things out there are simply the products of causes and conditions that made them so. And if you want to live differently, create the causes and conditions in this mind that shift them. And then if you get really kind of trippy about the whole thing, it makes you real grateful that you heard these teachings because they created the causes and conditions for this process to start. Because if we hadn't heard this, it wouldn't have occurred to us to start to see life in this way. So this is a beautiful thing. And it has struck people so profoundly. I wish I'd brought in my prop that, you know, people memorized three Nikayas that are about this big in very small font. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of very lengthy detailed suttas because they were so blown away by the profundity of these teachings, right? That, that if you really understand that a human being is just cause and effect and there's no me here, think of all the forgiveness, all the love, all the generosity that arises from the implications of that. All the years of blame and, and, and self-recrimination, all of that totally unnecessary. Your parents, products of causes and conditions. Your children, products of causes and conditions. You, product of causes and conditions. There's no evil people, there's no good people. There's just a way to cook things in a healthy way and there's a way to cook things so they taste absolutely awful. And that's it. And here we are. So I'll pause there and just see if there are questions or comments about the meditation, about the teachings, about the technicalities of this class. <laughs>